moved to Shoreham, where we now live, uh, three years ago, nearly three years ago. We lived for eight years in Cardiff. Do we have any Welsh people here? Oh, yeah, Cardiff people? Somewhere else. But Cardiff um, is actually a great place to live. I haven't been paid to say that, it really is. Because it has all the benefits of a capital city, but it's in a relatively small space. After living in London, it really felt quite dinky, but it was all there. You have the culture, you have the shopping, you have access to the countryside. And on a Friday and a Saturday night, you have one of the most vibrant and active nighttime economies in the UK. Cardiff Town Centre has the highest concentration of licensed premises anywhere in the UK. And within that square mile, recent figures have shown that there are 299 pubs, bars and clubs. And every Friday and Saturday night, you have students from the city's three universities, plus all of the young people who pour down into Cardiff from the valleys, all out in the city centre for a night out. One of the many things I did during our years in Cardiff was go out with Cardiff street pastors. Some of you may have heard of street pastors. In Cardiff, street pastors are out between 10 o'clock in the evening and 4 o'clock in the morning, basically to be the church on the streets, to help, to care, to keep safe the people who are out and about, all those young people, your young people maybe, out and about in the town, to keep them safe. Some of my enduring memories of those nights out with Cardiff street pastors are of when the clubs turn out, usually about three o'clock in the morning, and you have all these young women, Freya, it could be you, I'm sure it wouldn't be, but it could be you, uh, coming out of the pubs, being turned out of the clubs, beyond themselves with drink, many of these young people and oh so vulnerable and you watch you watch these young women being encouraged into a taxi with a man usually just a bit older than them which is where of course being uh, a woman and indeed being a bit of a grandma figure as a street pastor comes in very useful because actually you can gently steer them away from the taxi in which the man is waiting and into the taxi with their friends who will see them safely home. I found myself thinking of those evenings this week as I was reading Ruth chapter 3. Because what we see in, in Ruth 3 is an older woman who knew the risks steering her daughter-in-law, not away from, but into a similarly risky and highly vulnerable situation. Naomi, did you notice, sends Ruth out after dark alone to lay down and to partially uncover a man. Yes, a good man, but a man who may well have been drinking. Now, you tell me, that wasn't a risk. Not only in what might happen, but I mean, if, if word ever got out of what Ruth had done, 
her reputation would be in shreds. And in that culture, that would be utter disaster. Reading this story again this week, I felt as if I'd read this story lots of times, but I had missed so much. One of the things we often miss as we read the Bible is how incredibly carefully it's crafted. You know, if some of the books in the Bible were entered for, for the Booker Prize or perhaps for a short story prize, they would do really well. And actually, the chapter heading in, uh, in the Book of Ruth, this incredibly skillfully written book, the chapter heading in the NIV captures it. Ruth and Boaz, it reads, at the threshing floor. Now there's a headline for you, because the threshing floor in Ruth's time had a reputation. It was a place no decent young woman would venture, certainly not after dark. The threshing floor, actually in the Old Testament, is a place that is associated with prostitution. And here's Naomi, sending her daughter-in-law to the threshing floor, her daughter-in-law a Moabitess. And well, we all know what Moabite women are like, don't we? And Ruth that might have been acting like a noble woman up to now, but well, it comes out in the end, doesn't it? Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying that anything improper happened that night at the threshing floor. Indeed, what we're shown elsewhere of the character and, and the actions of both Ruth and Boaz give us every confidence that, that they behaved with the utmost propriety. But the narrative, the very language that is used, is full of this carefully contrived ambiguity, all of which heightens the tension and emphasizes the risk. Naomi, did you hear, tells Ruth to wash, to perfume, to put on her best clothes, and to go down to the threshing floor and wait. Then when Boaz has eaten and drunk his fill and settled to sleep, to go and lie down and uncover his feet. Now maybe Naomi was wanting Boaz's feet to get cold so he'd wake up and he and Ruth could have a chat. But the word translated feet means at least the lower part of the body and was often used as a euphemism for other more intimate parts. This is where I'm glad the children have gone out. You see, whatever was or was not happening, the very use of this language emphasizes the risk that Ruth was running. And not just Ruth. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and finds this bathed and perfumed woman lying very close. And to his credit, he is flustered and confused. And he possibly wonders just how much he'd had to drink. And Ruth seizes her moment. Spread the corner of your garment over me, she says, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Ruth's asking Boaz for marriage. That's what this phrase means. She's asking Boaz to do the right thing by her and even more to do the right thing by Naomi. Ruth had other marriage options, we're told that. 
But because Boaz was a kinsman redeemer to Naomi, if Boaz married Naomi's daughter-in-law and then went on to redeem the lands that belonged to the family, then Naomi too would have security into her old age. That's why Boaz responds in the way he does. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness to Naomi is greater than that which you showed earlier when you left everything back in Ruth chapter one to stay with her. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. I will do for you all you ask. But there's one fly in the ointment, isn't there? There's another kinsman redeemer who could take priority over Boaz. And so the, con the tension continues into next week and into chapter four. Don't know who's preaching on chapter four, but uh, you've, got, you've got the climax. This, I tell you, it's, it's worthy of a Jed Mercurio, isn't it really, this story? It is a fascinating story, well told. But of course, the question for us is, what is it that God wants us to hear through this passage this morning? As I've pondered and prayed with this passage for the last couple of weeks, two big things have stood out for me. First is something that I still find overwhelming about God. And the second is something challenging about how he's calling us to live. But firstly, something incredible about God. Tell me, what is it that Ruth is most commended for in this story? It is her utter loving faithfulness to her mother-in-law. We've seen back in Ruth chapter one that Ruth goes well beyond what's expected, well beyond what's just right, way beyond what anyone would have expected of her. There is something super abundant, even stubborn, in her faithfulness, her commitment to Naomi. And the word used in this passage to describe Ruth's loving kindness to Naomi is this word hesed, which is the word used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's loving kindness, God's commitment to us, his people, and to this world that he's created. And I am taking a deep breath here because what we glimpse in the life of Ruth is God's loving faithfulness expressed in a human life. Oh, not yet the full revelation of God's love we see in Jesus, but it's, it's a glimpse. It's a glimpse of God's super abundant, almost stubborn, loving commitment to us. In the days when I did children's talks, Trudy's not here, is she? Um, I'm always one for sharing anything that's a good children's talk. I used to love telling the story of King Canute. You know the story. Canute was king of England back in the 11th century. And for a while, he managed to unite the kingdoms of England, Norway, and Denmark. So he was, he was quite a king. But the story goes that 
well, he had some very flattering courtiers who basically kept telling him that he could achieve anything that he put his mind to. So one day he decided to put their opinion to the test, and you know how the story goes, he trotted down to the edge of the sea, reputedly by tradition at Bosom, just along the coast, and his courtiers struggled after him with his big, heavy wooden throne. They put it down at the edge of the water, and, and Canute climbed onto his throne and promptly began to command the incoming tide to turn back. And this is why you can have great fun with the children, because Canute stands, sits there, you know. I, Canute, King of England, King of Britain, the great king. He wasn't either of those two, but he was the great king. I command you always to turn back. And he does it two or three times, but you know the end of the story, don't you? He gets absolutely nowhere. He just gets very wet. But this is the thing. Canute trying to stop the waves is like us trying to stop God from loving us. We just can't do it. God's love is a love that goes beyond what's just right. It's a love that's soaked in mercy, a love that keeps coming, that keeps overtaking us in wave after wave after wave doing everything it can to make a good future possible, no matter what the risk. And in a small but significant way, the risky, loving faithfulness of Ruth echoes and reflects God's great, generous, relentless love for us human beings. The first thing this passage comes to remind us of this morning, which is what David has been leading us into in worship, is the utterly committed, superabundant, almost reckless love of God for us and for his world. And we might just want to pause there for a moment and to let these waves of, of God's love wash over us again, the waves of God's mercy of God's grace, uh, of God's peace, washing away the guilt, the anxiety, the restlessness. You may also find yourself, as you're sitting there, thinking of people you know who need to know this sort of love. And just quietly as we sit here, you may want to hold them in your heart and your mind and your prayers right now as the waves of that same love wash over them and through their situation. This is the love that caused Ruth to take such a risk for Naomi. Which leads to a question, doesn't it? I wonder what risks God might be asking us to take to make this love real for other people? What risks personally, what risks as a family, what risks as a church? Back in chapter two, Boaz was very generous in his wishes for Ruth. I have been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law, he says. 
May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. At the threshing floor, Ruth comes to remind him and to remind us that we have a role to play in making our prayers for others become real. Ruth risked her security. She risked her reputation. And let's make no bones about it. She did something that was scandalous, that would normally be frowned on, that she herself would probably normally have frowned on. Would we ever think of doing something that people might frown on if that's what it took to love like God loves us? Back in 1990, before I even knew Fee, we moved um, from Solihull in the West Midlands to South London to be pastors, Peter and I, at the church in West Norwood. Uh, we have two boys, now well-grown, as you can imagine, but back then they were nine and 12. And I have to say that putting our boys into local schools in the inner London borough of Lambeth back then was the biggest step of faith, the biggest risk of faith I have ever taken. And I have to tell you that God got us into it through naivety. We were innocents abroad. I remember sitting in the head study at the school where David, our older son, went before he went there as we were sort of getting to know the school. And I remember the head asking our 12-year-old David whether he'd ever been in trouble. And I have to tell you, he didn't know what he meant. I didn't know what he meant. And you could see David wondering, well, have I ever been late with my homework? And he probably hadn't, to be honest. And I have to say that there was not a day during that first year when I did not feel in the pit of my stomach anxious for our boys bringing them from Sully Hull, where the biggest problem was the schools not having enough places in their programs for gifted and able children, to such a different experience. Well, it's not what caring parents do, is it? And I am not saying that anyone else should do it, but it's what God called us to do. I always say God has got me into so many things out of naivety. And I am always so grateful afterwards that he did. Because, you know, as we look back, all four of us would say that we are so glad that we did it. Because as we stepped out of our familiarity, out of our personal comfort zone, as we sought to live faithfully, trusting in the constant love of God, and I have to tell you, it wasn't always easy. And I certainly did not sail through full of serenity. But we found such riches and more blessing than actually I have words to describe. The truth is that taking the risks that God asks us to take, those risky steps of faith that come in all different shapes and sizes, but taking those risky steps of faith opens us up to fresh experiences of God's goodness for us, 
as well as for others. Which, of course, is what happened for Ruth, isn't it? And for Boaz, as he took the risk of marrying a Moabite woman. Taking risks of faith takes us deeper into God's love. In a few moments, we're going to come and share communion together. We're going to come to this place where God takes the risk of opening his heart to us, of opening himself to rejection and to so much more that's painful. To this place where God invites us to come and receive again for ourselves the fullness, the relentless fullness of his love to this place where we see the strength and where we also see the power of God's love, the power of that love that raised Jesus from the dead. Hallelujah. And it is the risen Jesus who stands among us now, who looks at each of us and who says, come, receive and follow.